0: Before I introduce Linton Evans, our speaker today, I want to say uh, for purposes of conflict of interest that he does not have any uh, financial interests, and he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device today, and he is not receiving direct patients from any commercial entity with respect to this activity. So welcome, everyone. Welcome uh, those who who might be watching um, remotely, it's really a pleasure to introduce one of the newest members of our uh, Cancer Center community uh, today, Linton um, Evans, who's going to give Cancer Center uh, Grand Rounds. I was in my office the other day talking to someone up in the Cancer Center, um, and it was we were talking about how to solve a problem, and. Um, and we said uh, it really doesn't take a brain surgeon to know how to solve you know this, 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 this problem. Um, but Linton is walking proof that it really does take a brain surgeon to be a neurosurgeon. And um, he um, uh, did his undergraduate work at the University of Chicago. And then he graduated from Geisel, where he received the Dean's Medal uh, for the single student with the highest academic achievement. And then he did his internship and residency in neurosurgery here before during a fellowship in neurosurgery surgical oncology Um, at MD Anderson, and we are lucky enough to um, recruit him uh, to to rejoin us here at um, the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. And um, over the years, Linton has done uh, really wonderful work partnering with the wonderful team here, uh, looking at optical and fluorescent uh, uh, surgical guidance methods, working with Dave Roberts and and Keith Paulson and and, um, Brian Pogue and John Elliott, um, uh, really an all-star team uh, that he he worked with where he made uh, major contributions to that work, and more recently has developed a, an interest in, um, in the care of patients with spinal uh, metastasis. Linton's rapidly uh, emerged as, uh, um, as a highly valued member of the Cancer Center. He's the acting director of the neuro-oncology uh, COG, and um, we're really happy to have him uh, both as uh, a member of our Cancer Center as well as well a uh, grand round speaker today. Thanks, Linton. Thank you.
1: Sorry, it doesn't seem to be projecting.
2: Thank you so much for the opportunity to to speak today and
1: talk about something that's particularly of interest to me, which is the management of spinal metastasis, and and certainly from the certain perspective. I I think within neurosurgery, this is a fascinating and challenging patient population to take care of. Um, I also think it's particularly exciting because of all the tools that are now becoming available to the neurosurgeon and the, the group of clinicians caring for these patients, and it really enlists on both neurosurgery as well as radiation oncology, Um, and medical oncology as well to really inform not only which patients are surgical candidates or operative, but also what kind of surgery to do. So, again, I don't have any financial disclosures. I will be talking about a commercially available product uh, that's FDA-approved for soft tissue ablation, and, and this work falls under that approval. In terms of uh, what I hope to talk about, certainly a, a background on, on spine metastases and, and hopefully able to convey the sort of magnitude of the problem, and one that I think is actually going to be increasing just as systemic therapy continues to improve, a brief history of, of where we've come from, um, particularly highlighting the neurosurgical failures in the past, and then sort of the current surgical options where they stand today and in the future directions, which I also think are, are quite exciting. In terms of the magnitude of the problem, spinal metastases are a significant source of morbidity and functional impairment in individuals with cancer. And this arises either from spinal cord or nerve root compression along the spinal axis, spinal instability and deformity, and then also most notably pain. About 30 to 40 percent of uh, patients with a malignancy will develop spinal osseous metastases. I think so, yeah. And 5 to 10 percent of those will unfortunately develop uh, symptomatic spinal cord compression with an annual incidence of 20,000 patients in the United States. As similar to metastatic disease elsewhere in the body, not all malignancies uh, are created equal in terms of their predilection for spinal metastases. Um, Prostate, breast, and lung carcinoma probably account for more than 50 percent. One moment, please. Go try that. Um, lymphoma, renal cell carcinoma, multiple myeloma and melanoma are also frequent culprits, and then less commonly GI malignancies, thyroid and sarcoma. There's obviously a different distribution of uh, types in the pediatric population uh, with incidences of lymphoma, Ewing sarcoma, and neuroblastoma being more prevalent. And 20 to 30 percent of patients actually uh, present with symptomatic uh, spinal cord compression at the time of their diagnosis. And this is particularly true of lung carcinoma. In terms of the location along the spine where uh, they arise, it reflects both the uh, sort of bony mass of each segment of the spine as well as the relative blood flow. The cervical spine accounts for approximately 15%. The thoracic spine bears the greatest burden, accounting for 60%. And then the lumbosacral spine um, accounts for about 25%. The other thing that's really notable is that there's multiple sites involved in 20 to 35 percent of patients. And so this also um, is important to consider when considering the diagnostic evaluation. Oftentimes, patients will have imaging of the symptomatic segment of their spine, but it's really important to continue, consider that there's a significant chance of disease elsewhere along the spinal axis. In terms of the location of the vertebrae or, or the spinal bodies themselves Uh, the vast majority of tumors arise within the anterior anterior lateral aspects of the spine specifically within the vertebral body Um, certainly much more so than the posterior elements um, of the spine and that's that's characteristic of of metastatic disease it's thought that one the growth factors released from the stromal cells within the bone marrow might serve as creating a, a favorable milieu for colonization and then also the the large vertebral plexus that engulfs the vertebral bodies and then also the the venous channels that were within the vertebrae themselves. In terms of the pathophysiology, the mechanisms of epidural compression, um, there are cases of direct extension from paravertebral masses, um, but this is really the exception. The vast majority is is thought to arise from hematogenous dissemination, um, accounting for more than 85 percent. The classic teaching is that this is uh, through the Batson's vertebral plexus. There is some animal work that suggests that actually arterial embolization might uh, be the greatest factor, Um, but regardless, it's, it's hematogenous spread. In terms of how there's actually damage to the spinal cord or nerves themselves, some of this can arise through direct compression. Again, it tends to be gradual as the tumors expand, and this leads to demyelination as well as axonal injury. And then there's also secondary injury from vascular compression. And this is really compression of the epidural venous plexus that leads to venous congestion within the spinal cord and breakdown of the blood spinal cord barrier, oftentimes manifest as changes on the MRI within the spinal cord itself. This leads to reversible cord edema. And at this phase or stage, patients oftentimes improve clinically or have some favorable response to high-dose dexamethasone or steroids. But if left untreated, this will progress to irreversible cord ischemia. In terms of the presentation, pain is the vast, vast majority of of the presenting sign, with more than 90% of patients presenting with pain. Um, In terms of how I think about pain, I, I think about it in two fashions, and this is also described extensively. The first is biologic pain, and that's really thought to be secondary to local tumor growth or invasion. This can be focal, either arising from distension of the periosteum or invasion into the paravertebral soft tissues or it can be ridiculous if there's invasion or compression of the adjacent nerve roots. Typically, this is described as worse at night, um, and it responds to steroids as well as treatment <coughs> with radiation therapy. Anecdotally, the thought about why this is worse at night is that is when you're supine, your spine actually is is longer just because you have compression of the, the disc spaces uh, during the day with axial loading, and that the stretching of the periosteum increases the pain. Others suspect that if... Your endogenous steroid uh, synthesis is lower at night, that perhaps that also is, is a mechanism for the increased pain. The other kind of pain is mechanical, and this really arises from uh, tumor destroying the integrity of the spinal um, spinal stability it 's absorba- exacerbated with standing or movement anytime there 's an axial load imposed on the spine and really it 's improved at rest and, and clinically when you 're taking a patient 's history. Um, I think it's important to try to elucidate how much of their pain is arising from mechanical instability, because certainly this will help inform the decision-making about what they might need surgically. Weakness is common. About 35 to 75 percent of patients present with some form of weakness. Oftentimes this is described as heaviness or clumsiness, Um, but up to 50 percent of people are are unable to walk at presentation, and this is really a poor prognosis, um, and one of the factors that you know, portends uh, not a likely recovery even after surgical decompression or even radiation. Sensory loss is frequent. or bladder dysfunction to some degree is present in up to 50%, and again, loss of sphincter control really is a, a sign of a poor prognosis in terms of recovery of neurologic function. In terms of diagnosis, really an MRI is the best modality, and again, if someone presents with neck pain and gets an MRI of the neck that shows a lesion, really the entire spinal axis should be imaged at some point. Uh, CT is also helpful at the time of diagnosis to can, can reveal uh, lesions throughout the spine. And then in terms of surgical planning, it's helpful as well. X-rays are of really limited utility, and there's some reports that there has to be 50% of the vertebral body um, undergoing some destruction before you see manifestation on a, a plain X-ray. So really there's a high... Uh, false negative rate just with plain x-rays. In terms of the focus of treatment, it's fundamentally palliative. These are patients that aren't gonna be cured. Um, and, and so really, you know, their, their treatment with respect to their spine disease really needs to keep that in mind. I think one of the greatest goals is preservation of neurologic function. Restore and maintain spinal stability. Again, not only to protect the spinal cord and nerve roots, but also to improve pain. Improve pain itself. Provide durable local tumor control. And we'll talk that this isn't necessarily what's addressed from, from a surgical solution, um, but it needs to be considered in terms of devising a strategy and uh, managing these patients. Maintain functional independence. And really, all of this has to be balanced against taking care of a relatively sick patient population, oftentimes, um, and minimizing treatment related morbidity, providing the least disruption to systemic therapy and also having the shortest hospital stay. I think in some respect, the therapeutic window of these patients is relatively narrow um, because they're oftentimes demanding relatively large surgeries. Um, But again, they're at risk for complications because of their disease and also some of their other treatments. Um, And so it does become a fine balance between doing somewhat large, large interventions without imposing too great of a morbidity. In terms of the obstacles from a surgical standpoint for this patient population, that's even very different from taking care of patients with brain tumors and also other patients having spine surgery. Um, the fact that they oftentimes have multiple comorbidities, one of the biggest questions surrounding surgery and diagnosis of spinal metastases is if they have DVTs or PEs, how to handle anticoagulation around the time of their surgeries. They're frequently anemic from their other, other therapies and ongoing illness. Uh, The fact that they're oftentimes on concurrent systemic therapy, and again, this not only needs to be balanced in terms of shortening the disruption to their systemic therapy, but also certain therapies like Avastin or VEGF inhibitors are going to limit what you can do surgically just from a wound healing standpoint. Wound healing is a, a big issue in this patient population not only in wound dehiscence and breakdown, but wound infection. Um, there's a, a large series uh, that shows that these patients undergo wound healing complications in, in almost 20% of the time. And this is multifactorial related to the medications they're on, particularly chronic steroids, uh, nutrition, and then also uh, the fact that oftentimes these patients have undergone some prior form of radiation.
2: I'm sorry, what was that? also
1: related to diabetes status? Diabetes? Yeah, because
2: they were feeling
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So again, even aside from their malignancy, they're, they're frequently presenting with, with diabetes or other medical issues. And then one of the things that I think is particularly interesting from a surgical standpoint is the fact that these patients oftentimes <coughs> don't fuse their bone. And again, that's because steroid use is going to impair bony effusion as well as radiation. So generally in spine surgery, the goal of any kind of instrumentation is just to stabilize the spine until the patient's bone can fuse. Ultimately, if there's not fusion, that hardware is going to fatigue and fail. And and these patients, oftentimes they really don't fuse. So in terms of deciding how much hardware, how many levels, whether it's an anterior and a posterior instrumentation, becomes more of a difficult question because you need to develop a, a construct that's going to keep their spine stable, sort of, that's going to outlive them, Um, and and that's particularly at risk in a patient that's likely not going to fuse. In terms of the the history of the management of this, early treatment included high-dose steroids, and even before, you know, widespread uh, radiation was used, Surgeons were involved in this and and typically performed posterior decompressions, just a a laminectomy, which if someone is lying on their belly in the operating room, the lamina forms the roof of the spinal canal. And so most of the the surgical procedures were just unroofing the spinal canal and decompressing the spinal cord um, without effusion. And this almost always was an absolute failure. When there were then trials comparing surgery plus radiation to radiation alone, with a posterior only decompression. The patients oftentimes had no improvement in their neurologic outcomes, their functional outcomes, or their pain, and oftentimes did worse than people that were undergoing uh, radiation therapy alone. And at this point, surgical decompression was largely abandoned in favor of, of radiation therapy alone. And in terms of understanding why this was a failure, as mentioned before, Most metastatic disease involves the anterior column of the spine, so it's, it's ventral to the spinal cord itself. When you're decompressing just the posterior aspect of the spine, you're really not addressing where the compression or the pathology arises. Secondly, when you then decompress the spinal canal, you're really destabilizing the spinal axis even further. Oftentimes, it's the posterior elements that are the only intact elements, structural elements within the spine. So not only have you not addressed where the pathology is in terms of decompressing the spinal cord or the roots, you've actually then given the patient a new problem where you've actually destabilized the the remaining intact portion of the spinal column. However, advances in spine surgery really revitalized the role uh, in the management of surgery and epidural spinal cord compression. And this had to do with an evolution of not only spinal instrumentation and stabilization that was being used, but also techniques to circumferentially decompress the spinal cord and canal. And this was either being done through a combined anterior-posterior, where you expose the anterior portion of the spine and do a corpectomy or remove the the diseased bone, followed by a posterior decompression, oftentimes through a second second incision or surgery, um, or ways of of decompressing the spinal cord just from behind. Um, And it was kind of starting in the 1980s where there were multiple surgical series um, from a handful of surgeons doing pretty aggressive surgery, um, certainly not in a randomized fashion, but doing circumferential decompression of the spinal cord and always with effusion. And in these series, they started to see that there were better functional outcomes and neurologic outcomes in patients undergoing surgery and radiation therapy versus radiation therapy alone. In 2005, probably one of the most cited papers to advocate for surgery um, in the management of this was a randomized trial by Patchell et al. And this was a multicenter trial. enrolled patients with symptomatic spinal cord compression, Um, and they were randomized either to decompression plus radiation or radiation alone. And the trial actually was terminated um, after interim analysis, after accruing just just half the patients that were intended to be enrolled based on on how striking the results were. The primary endpoint was ambulation, albeit ambulation was defined as taking only four steps. Um, The secondary endpoints were urinary continence, muscle strength, functional status, corticosteroid use, opioid use, and survival time. And these are just some of the curves that show that um, patients, in terms of taking all of the comers, uh, patients that underwent surgery uh, had much higher rates of ambulation and also ambulated for a longer period of time after surgery. Um, it was 84% of patients following surgery versus 50% of sur- 57% that underwent radiation that remained ambulatory. The number of days after treatment in which they were ambulatory was 122 versus 13 on average. And of patients that weren't ambulatory or couldn't walk at the time of presentation, 10 out of 16 of those patients regained some function in terms of walking following surgery, whereas only 3 out of 16 following radiation did. (coughs) In terms of some of the other outcomes, uh, urinary continence was significantly improved in the surgery arm, so some of the other measures of functional status and muscle strength, and then there was a significantly significant difference, although not a a profound one, in terms of overall survival. So from this, um, this really laid the groundwork that patients in a surgical cohort experience significant improvement in their ambulation, their pain control, continence, and survival, and that really appropriately selected uh, surgery offers a meaningful improvement in quality of life with an acceptable morbidity, when added to radiation therapy. And really the aim of surgery is to provide decompression of the spinal cord or nerve roots and also provide mechanical stability. I think also this was beginning to form the realization that the surgical goal in metastatic disease is not an oncologic one. The goal of surgery is not to resect as much of the tumor as possible. It's it's a very specific goal of, of decompression and stabilization and really an awareness that it's radiotherapy that provides durable local control. So I think advances in, in radiotherapy have really driven some of the surgical advances and, and led to a paradigm shift in terms of how, how spine surgery is managed for, for this patient population. So radiotherapy really is the principal treatment of spine metastases. It provides durable local control um, as well as definitive oncologic treatment. It offers improved pain control in the majority of patients and may be used alone or in conjunction with surgery And aside from neural decompression or stabilization, the role of surgery now is really to facilitate a safe delivery of radiotherapy. And we'll talk about more in terms of what type of radiotherapy is used and the implications in terms of surgery. Um, But again, really developments in radiotherapy and surgery continue to co-evolve. In terms of uh, local control or the, the efficacy of radiation, it's dependent on the tumor histology, the radiosensitivity of that tumor histology, and the dose. I think that radiosensitivity or radioresistance is sort of a historical concept based just on fractionated radiotherapy. Um, but radiosensitive tumors are considered to be uh, lymphoma, plasma cytoma, multiple myeloma, small cell carcinomas, germ cell tumors, and then breast and prostate cancer. Whereas the radioresistant tumors that have very poor long-term control um, following just conventional fractionated radiation include lung, thyroid, hepatocellular, colorectal, renal cell, melanoma, and sarcoma. So a number of of tumor types that are frequently encountered in terms of managing metastatic disease. So, one of the developments that, I again, I think has been sort of a groundbreaker in terms of managing spine metastases, and and certainly can't speak as eloquently to as the radiation oncologist, but um, certainly think about in terms of managing these patients and deciding a treatment, is conventional therapy versus stereotactic radiosurgery or stereotactic body radiation therapy. And this is highly conformal radiation delivered to the tumor minimizing the um, irradiation or exposure of the surrounding tissues. Um, and, and really, this has overcome a lot of the, the radiosensitivity sensitivity um, or radiation resistance that was encountered in, in treating patients with renal cell um, or some of the other histologies. So this effectively overcomes radiation resistance. Um, Due to the high degree of conformality and tissue sparing, it can be used to treat prior radiation failure, so you can use SRS following uh, conventional radiation. In terms of reported rates of local control, they're um, as high as 70 to 90 percent um, local tumor control following single or hypofractionated delivered between one and five sessions. Um, This sort of stems from large body of work from uh, University of Pittsburgh, as well as a number of studies coming out of uh, Memorial Sloan where they are very aggressive with, with their uh, radiosurgery. Um, and even some of these reports show similar rates of local control for on-block spondylectomy or doing a, an on-block resection where you're staying outside of the tumor um, between radiosurgery and, and that kind of aggressive surgery um, for a, a cancer such as renal cell carcinoma. So, again, building evidence that really in this patient population, moving away from these radical resections where you're trying to get everything out from a surgical standpoint. The one problem that does arise, particularly in patients that have epidural compression, um, is is how to deliver a tumor recital dose of the radiation without compromising the spinal cord. Um, So generally, the conventional um, accepted tolerance of the spinal cord is 12-gray, Um, There's a large study by um, a group led by Lovelock that showed that one of the greatest predictors of failure following radiosurgery is if regions of tumor receive less than 15 gray. So in areas where there's significant epidural compression, um, you lose a margin of safety that allows you to deliver an efficacious dose of radiation to the tumor without exceeding the core tolerance of 12 gray. And so this is really pushed for sort of a new philosophy, and new probably over the last 10 years or so, where the goal is to separate the spinal cord from the tumor. And this is really designed to just give even a couple millimeters of separation between the spinal cord and the tumor so that the patient can receive radiosurgery. There are some at least in the neurosurgical community, some accepted sort of standards of of how to define the degree of epidural Mm -hmm. compression. This is uh, the Bilski grade or Bilski score uh, that was developed by Bilski, who's a neurosurgeon at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. Again, looking at whether the disease is just limited to the vertebral body itself or whether you start to have epidural encroachment where it abuts the spinal cord but doesn't compress it versus where you have frank compression of the spinal cord. And really when... Sort of it becomes an issue to be able to deliver uh, radiosurgery um, where the degree of epidural tumor involvement begins to limit that is with relatively high grades of epidural compression that are sort of 1C, Bilski grade 2, and, and certainly Bilski grade 3. So this, I think, is sort of a widely accepted standard of, of the thinking um, that goes into how to manage these patients. Um, and it looks at a number of factors, sort of the neurologic status of the patient, an oncologic perspective in terms of the tumor diagnosis or tumor type and its radiosensitivity, whether there's any issues with spinal instability, and then also, of course, taking into account the the degree of systemic involvement. But for example, and I'll I'll show some examples of these, either for patients that have uh, either no or very low-grade epidural compression but have a relatively radio resistant pathology, those might be candidates that can just be treated with, with radio surgery alone versus needing separation surgery. Even some patients with relatively high degree of um, epidural compression, if it's a radiosensitive pathology, those oftentimes might be candidates either just to receive conventional radiation And then certainly, if there is a patient that does have neurologic deficits or neurologic compromise, these are are generally all patients that are undergoing surgical decompression, keeping in mind, again, whether the goal of surgery is that they're going to be getting radiosurgery afterwards. Um, And then if any patient, even if they're neurologically intact or have, don't need a decompression for for purposes of radiosurgery, if they have evidence of mechanical instability, those are patients that are going to receive some form of stabilization. So these are some cases. This is a, a 56-year-old male uh, with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. He presented with uh, axial or mechanical back pain. He was neurologically intact, um, and after review with the, the radiation oncologists, uh, this was actually um, in in Texas. They felt that they could deliver the perform radio surgery safely. Um, so this patient wasn't one that was felt. They needed to undergo a decompression for the purposes of radio surgery, but because he did have significant back pain and evidence of spinal instability, he underwent a, a minimally evasive percutaneous fusion and cement augmentation. And this is ultimately sort of what his, his fusion looked like postoperatively. Again, these oftentimes tend to be long constructs. Again, you're asking a lot of these screws and this hardware based on the fact that this is someone who has a, a significant rate of, of or a significant chance of likely not fusing. So, generally, the the constructs are are larger than what you might use in trauma or degenerative disease. Uh, This is a 58-year-old male with metastatic colorectal cancer, Um, and I think this is uh, interesting not only in terms of the neurosurgical issues, but also just showing now that patients are living much longer with metastatic disease. This is someone who was diagnosed in 2011, had a resection at that time. Subsequently presented in 2014 with hepatic lesions, had resection at that time, had a pulmonary metastasis in 2015, underwent a resection at that time, and then uh, presented presented with this spine lesion. Um, He ultimately underwent conventional fractionated therapy at an outside hospital um, and presented with radiographic evidence of uh, both spinal instability and recurrent tumor. So this is tumor within the epidural space um, that's abutting the spinal cord. So this patient underwent separation surgery uh, where much of the posterior aspect of the vertebral body is removed so that you can visualize the anterior aspect of the spinal cord and decompress it. Um, and uh, then also underwent a fusion, too, in part because we destabilized his posterior elements, um, but also he had evidence of instability even at the time of, of presentation. Um, these are f- not for the patient but for the surgeons, I think, a fun surgery to perform. Um, without a better way of putting it, they're big wax, Um, and you really see kind of the anatomy laid out beautifully. So this is the spinal. This is the dura around the spinal cord here. These are the exiting nerve roots. You can see that most of the posterior aspect of the vertebral body has been removed, including the pedicles, oftentimes the head of a rib if it's in the thoracic spine and the transverse processes. And this is called a transpedicular decompression or vertebrectomy By removing the lateral sides of the vertebral body, you're then able to look around the spinal cord and either push bone fragments forward and epidural disease away from the spinal cord um, or remove it completely. Um, By doing it this way, you actually can kind of get everything done from behind versus then the patient needing another operation through the front, where you'd either go through the abdomen or the chest. Again, these are patients that are all being instrumented and fused because they're oftentimes unstable to begin with, and certainly we're destabilizing them even more. Within the thoracic spine, you can do multiple levels or multiple vertebrectomies from behind. The way you get there is you keep ligating nerve roots, and oftentimes you you can sort of do that without abandon in the thoracic spine. Uh, The only implication is that the patient will have some some numbness um, in a a radicular manner on their their chest. Uh, This is another patient. This is a 61-year-old female uh, with uh, lung carcinoma. Um, that uh, had, uh, she actually, interestingly, had uh, conventional radiation for this um, and then presented with three days of urinary incontinence. This was her her pathologic fracture. You saw her epidural disease. So she, again, had a posterior decompression. In this case, the entire vertebral body was removed because it was so collapsed and cement was placed not only through the screws which are fenestrated in the levels above and below to strengthen the construct. But then also her vertebral body was reconstructed with cement as well. And again, this is just showing sort of how wide a lateral exposure you can get to get in front of the spinal cord. And this is the last case um, that I was going to show. This is a 65-year-old that actually uh, had a plasma cytoma, and he presented with several weeks of numbness. Um, and because he didn't have a new or escalating neurologic deficit, he felt that the likelihood of his numbness improving was low, so he actually uh, just proceeded to fractionated radiation therapy. Um, he had a really nice response, whereas before you couldn't see any spinal fluid around the spinal cord, now you could. Um, but he had severe pain that was limiting his ability to stand and sit, so he had a significant functional limitation. Um, so we decided to do a minimally invasive stabilization. This is sort of minimally invasive by a neurosurgeon standpoint, I guess. Um, <laughs> So these are, are long towers that are attached to each screw head. Instead of having a big midline incision, each uh, one of these towers goes through an incision that's probably about a centimeter and a half. Um, coming out of this screw head here, you see another little tower coming out the top. This connects to the fenestrated screw so that we can then inject cement down the shaft of the screw. It extravasates from the holes at the head of the screw into the vertebral body. Um, These cases also, because we're not getting to view the anatomy of the spine, we do this with image guidance, which actually was pioneered at Dartmouth by by Dave Roberts for cranial cases. Um, That's now been adapted to the spine as well. Um, So we have an image guidance system where this patient has a CAT scan in the operating room. He's co-registered in the OR space with that cat scan so that we can touch any point on his skin and his bony anatomy and it shows us the corresponding point on his cat scan so we can then find entry points for screws and trajectories so all of this in some ways is somewhat hairy because you don't see anything past the patient's skin so you're really trusting your your instrumentation um, is sort of flying by instrument i guess and so this is what he had um, again with the fusion above and below um, and it significantly improved improved his pain. So I think these just show that the decision-making in these cases is really interesting. It's not routine. It's not straightforward. It's really addressing the status of their cancer, the status of their spine, and then their function. I think one thing that's really exciting, again, as technology moves forward, is how you can keep pushing this to be more minimally invasive, um, and I think... Probably someday there'll be a paradigm shift, hopefully in the near future, where we're not just talking about doing a, a big decompression to separate the spinal cord, but we're using other tools to do that in a minimally invasive one, way. And, and so I'm just going to take the last few minutes to talk about something called LID. Um, this stands for laser interstitial thermal therapy. This is a percutaneous technique um, that's been approved by the FDA for any soft tissue ablation. Um, It's currently gained widespread use within the neurosurgical community, um, almost exclusively for treatment of uh, brain tumors or epilepsy. Um, One of the nice things about this percutaneous technique versus something like radiofrequency ablation is that temperature can be monitored in real time using something called MR thermography. And it's been discovered and modeled that as you heat tissue, the protons in that tissue are going to change and there's going to be a chemical shift that you can actually model. So as you're heating the tissue up with the laser, we acquire MR images every three seconds and we're able to calculate the temperature in the tissue in a real-time fashion. So not only can we tell what the temperature is, but then we can then use that to estimate what kind of burn or cell death there's going to be. So again, it's used in treatment not routinely, but for primary or recurrent glial tumors is being investigated, management of metastases, particularly those that have occurred following uh, radiation or radiosurgery, radiation necrosis, um, and then there's also a a growing use of this in the treatment of lesional epilepsy. Uh, This is a picture of the laser here. Um, The laser fits within a catheter down, this catheter is just saline coolant that keeps the uh, 980 nanometer diode cooled throughout the ablation. Um, This whole system is 1.7 millimeters in size. Um, And this is just an example, again, sort of some of the more routine use, um, showing after the laser has been inserted, this is a a patient having um, ablation of their hippocampus for epilepsy. Um, The image on the left shows the real-time thermal map. So again, when that laser is on, you're accumulating data about the temperature in the surrounding tissue, and then there's either um, sort of hot and fast killing of that tissue where it sees a very high temperature and immediately dies, or once you hit 45, 50 degrees Celsius for a sustained period of time, you're going to start having a time-dependent death of that tissue. And so um, using the Arrhenius equation and some other modeling, you're able to model how much cell death you actually have. So in the operating room, you're actually looking at both those images and using both of those throughout. Um, so in terms of using this for the spine, this is currently only being done in one other center um, at MD Anderson with us hopefully to follow. Um, but spine lit to create a cute name, I guess Slit is what some people are describing this. But it has a number of advantages over open decompression. Again, likely decreased morbidity. It's a big, these open surgeries are big surgeries to be putting people through. They're long, they're under general anesthesia for a long period of time. Um, Hopefully by doing a minimally invasive procedure where, again, this is truly minimally invasive, unlike the last slide I showed you. These are oftentimes stab incisions in the skin, so very small incisions. But hopefully you can limit disruption of systemic therapy and even anticoagulation. Oftentimes these are patients that are having their therapeutic anticoagulation held the night before surgery and then they resume it on post-op day one. Shorten hospital admissions, decrease pain, minimize blood loss and transfusions, smaller wounds to worry about, wound healing complications from. For tumors that are very vascular, like renal cell or thyroid, these patients are oftentimes undergoing preoperative embolization before an open surgery to decrease blood loss in the OR. So that's another procedure that isn't without risks that requires admission the day before their surgery. Starting to look into whether this is cheaper than open surgeries, um, and then if a patient does need a fusion, it can still be done. So some of the other ways of doing percutaneous ablations, um, probably radiofrequency is the most commonly um, <coughs> used and then cryoablation. The problem with uh, particularly radiofrequency ablation is that you can't, again, model the temperature in real time. So you don't have a very accurate estimation of the temperature and then also the size of the lesion that you're creating. And again, the idea of this is to replace separation surgery where you're just creating a necrotic zone between the spinal cord um, and the remaining of the tumor so that, again, you can deliver radiosurgery. So, um, again, these, these lesions are oftentimes being made up against the dura, so it's really important to be able to safely monitor that. In terms of how this is performed, A laser fiber is inserted into the tumor using image guidance, much like that last case that we did that was minimally evasive. The target that you're aiming for is usually within 5 millimeters of the spinal cord. Energy is then transferred into the surrounding tissue, producing a thermal injury uh, with time sufficient to lead to tumor cell death and coagulative necrosis. Again, it's this zone or boundary of necrotic tissue that's promoting separation, and you can monitor real-time temperature as well as this uh, death. And then you can even set temperature limits on the dura and spinal cord itself. So not only are you watching the high, but we're able to set relatively low temperature thresholds on the spinal cord, and the, the laser actually shuts off when that temperature is reached. So it adds a, another degree of safety to protect the spinal cord. Can I ask a
2: question? Yeah. When you say, when you say cell death, do you know if this is...
1: Uh, presumably necrotic I guess the one thing is is uh, so most of this work has been done in the brain. Um, there's been very little done in the spine, and even for the most extensive work that 's been done in the brain there 's not much understood about what 's actually going on. so our understanding of the lesion largely comes from radiographic findings, so patients having MRIs within twenty four hours of surgery and then having MRIs within several Weeks and months out, and that's how we're understanding the size of the lesion that's created and what's happening. Um, the MRIs are strange looking, so it's you know, neuroradiologists need to be aware that this is being performed because it's going to affect what the imaging looks like for some period of time. But there's very little understanding too of what's going on outside of that necrotic area that's been created over time, and and so sometimes patients, particularly having brain tumors ablated this way develop really profound edema and inflammation, so there is some downstream effect that's happening, but we don't have much in terms of basic science looking at this, or even animal models looking at the histopathology following the lesions. Um, In terms of preventing injury to the spinal cord, um, the Again, as I mentioned, the temperature immediately adjacent to the spinal cord is monitored. And then just one of the nice things about the spinal cord and the spinal column is that it's really uniquely suited for this because of its anatomy. So um, heat sinks are any structure that's either going to be fluid or blood vessels. And, and it's amazing. You cannot ablate tissue that's next to a heat sink. It just absorbs all of the heat. And there are sort of two natural heat sinks um, right next to the spinal cord, one being the spinal fluid space, although it's oftentimes compressed um, by virtue of the tumor being there, but there is some spinal fluid, and then that epidural venous plexus also is going to serve as a heat sink. So although you're in close proximity to the spinal cord, again, there's anatomic features that are hopefully preventing injury as well. This is what um, sort of, again, in terms of performing these procedures. um, The top panel shows uh, the image guidance system that we're using, um, so this is a, a modeled projection of the fibers we're inserting it. Again, you have to get in front of the spinal cord, so oftentimes we're taking very lateral to medial trajectories. Um, and, again, you're using your spinal navigation to watch, to navigate that fiber as it's being inserted. Um, and this is just a, a, an x-ray showing, again, you have to do multiple fibers. So oftentimes we'll use nine fibers or nine different ablations to effectively um, treat a certain area. And then the lower panel here shows the imaging that you're seeing when you're actually uh, doing the ablation. Um, So in this bottom panel here, you see the fiber being inserted, um, and then you can see the, the temperature thresholds along the spinal cord here. This is during the ablation itself, showing the estimated prediction of what's being ablated. And then this image on the far right actually is obtained following the ablation, and you can see this dark area here is no longer enhancing. And so that's the area that's representing necrosis. And it is reassuring to see that what's being modeled in the operating room, what you're assuming the ablation is, looks pretty close to what you're seeing uh, postoperatively. So in terms of patient selection, um, this is a minimally invasive alternative to an open circumferential decompression uh, for patients with epidural compression that are candidates for radiosurgery. Um, So these patients typically have high-grade epidural compression Um, on this scale, this Bilski scale, it's usually one C or greater. They have to have a normal neurologic exam. So this is never going to replace doing a decompression to preserve neurologic function. (laughs) Patients with multiple medical comorbidities that would complicate an open procedure are well-suited for this. Again, there's minimal blood loss. It's usually 50 cc's or less. So anyone that could just basically sit there under general anesthesia as a candidate. Um, Anyone that needs to rapidly uh, resume or continue systemic therapy is a candidate for this. And then currently, we're only doing this in the thoracic spine. And that's because you can't visualize the nerve roots as you're inserting those fibers. So if there's an eloquent or a functional nerve root, you know, supplying the brachial plexus or the lumbosacral plexus coming off the the cervical and the lumbar spine, those nerve roots are, are at risk for being injured. And in the first iteration of this, patients were having this done in the cervical and lumbar spine and and did have deficits. Um, Oftentimes in the thoracic spine, you're actually ablating the nerve roots at that level, um, which can actually be a source of pain control. Uh, Patients that can't have an MRI aren't candidate. Um, If it's a vascular tumor, again, you can um, forego embolization, which is ideal. And then osteolytic tumors versus osteoblastic are also um, ideal. So this is uh, some of the early experience from MD Anderson. Um, They now have 100 patients. Some of this is published and then currently um, submitted for publication. The median length of stay was two days. Um, That tends to be very brief relative to patients having open surgery um, and, again, was statistically significant. There was a statistically significant reduction in epidural volume. Um, So on subsequent MRIs, there was greater than a 20% reduction in the degree of uh, epidural tumor. Uh, significantly increased uh, improvement in pain scores. Um, Estimated blood loss was less than 100 cc's in 97 of the patients, and that was irregardless of whether they were then going on to have an instrumentation. Uh, One-third of patients did require subsequent stabilization, and that was actually done at the time of ablation. In terms of how well this is doing in terms of providing sort of an oncologic outcome, again, this, this isn't intended to ablate tumor for the purpose of providing local control. It's really to facilitate radio surgery, But um, in 17 of the treated sites, there was local tumor progression um, relative to the most aggressive sort of radio surgery series coming out of uh, MSK. That's a little higher, um, but this is relatively comparable to patients within the institution having open separation surgery. In terms of the complications, um, there's only been one patient with uh, a or one patient had a transient monoparesis. Um, it recovered fully, but on the post-op MRI, there was some signal change within the cord itself. Um, one patient had an L1-L2 palsy, and that was in that early series where patients were having ablations in the lumbar spine. One patient had a wound to Um Two patients after surgery required reoperation. One patient had a neurologic deficit pre-op, sort of speaking again to the fact that these patients can't even have subtle deficits. Um, and then the other patient actually was on immunotherapy and developed a profound reaction where they had swelling um, and spinal cord compression um, uh, several weeks after their, their lit and the reinitiation initiation of uh, immunotherapy. Um, they had to have an urgent decompression. All of the... Tissue that was sent was dead tumor, but um, they, they ended up having a second operation. Um, and then there was one compression fracture, which isn't too surprising, since that certainly is also um, a risk just with radiosurgery. Yeah. The
0: problem with the immunotherapy, the, the immunotherapy was systemic?
1: It was systemic. Yep, it was on systemic.
0: You
1: know which one was? Uh, I do not. I think it was the a renal cell patient. that um, Ippy, I believe, but I, I don't know. I don't recall for sure. Yes. So it's it's coming. Um, so uh, this is this is a picture of our our Center for Surgical Innovation, or the CSI. Um, this is probably one of the most advanced ORs in the country, and it's sitting in the basement here. It's phenomenal. It's an amazing OR. Um, you have the capability of getting an intraoperative MRI with a three Tesla magnet. That's unique. You can also get an intraoperative CT, so you can look at both modalities. So we are primed for this. We're currently using LIT for cranial applications. Um, the spine applications are a little further behind just because, again, um, this requires a lot of programming on the MR physicist standpoint to develop the imaging programs to adequately image the spine. Even how the anesthetic is handled is a little different. Um, for cranial applications, with respirophasic variations, you don't see movement in the brain. With the spine, there's enough movement just with breathing that the anesthesia team has to do breath holds. So there's a lot of coordination um, to get this done, but I'm, I'm optimistic within the next next couple of months that we're gonna be able to start doing this. Um, I think that it's really exciting that we'll only be the second center doing this in the US. Um, Claudio Tatsui, MD Anderson is the person that's really pioneered this and is very interested in seeing this take off I would hope that this would be not only a resource for our patients in the region, but also drawing from even beyond. Because, um, again, I, I think that there's very select applications where this is a... a yeah, because one of the things that
2: comes to my mind is the, the intracumoral injection. Because if you are doing intratumoral heating uh, of the... Mm-hmm. tumor, uh, with the would just keep finding what you're trying to do is injection then from the you need <laughs> because here you saw this sort of tumor Yeah. the would be more powerful.
1: And that's And I, I think, too, there's a number of research opportunities that this brings up, too. Anecdotally, some of the patients that had radiosurgery to one lesion in the spine and then had lit and radiosurgery in the other lesion recurred where they had radio surgery sooner than where they had the lit and radio surgery. So, you know, I think asking questions, whether there's synergism between this and radio surgery, what actually is happening in terms of beyond the period where you're creating a lesion, if there's some smoldering event that's happening as well that could be exploited. Um, For the cranial work, it's not pertinent here, but um, there's some thought that this is going to disrupt the blood-brain barrier for several weeks. So some groups are trying kind of hyper-acute chemotherapy, um, after the the lesioning, thinking that you'll increase or enhance delivery of the drug to the brain tumor, um, so I think there's a lot of exciting opportunities. I, I think this is also something not to be too bombastic, but I, I think we can actually do much better than how it was being done in in Texas. Um, and and actually, the folks there want to come and see our setup here because it is it is such a unique a unique environment to operate and manage these patients, and is really uniquely suited. I also think this is probably a better application of lit than some of the cranial applications. Um, again, because you're not you're not trying to necrose or treat a whole tumor volume. Um, so, you know, just as the other acknowledgement, this is a, a picture of getting a case going in the CSI. Um, and again, it's these cases are exciting. They demand a lot in terms of resources um, and a and team. Um, so it's 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 exciting well, to look forward to. It. Pardon? Less invasive operation. The going on here. I actually, I'm not sure. It's just a nice picture. <laughs> 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 um, but but with the lid, you know, the lid is a very. It's it's not an invasive procedure, but there's a ton of a ton of people that are involved in that. So just uh, conclusions. Um, Spinal metastases and and metastatic epidural spinal cord compression are a frequent occurrence, certainly in metastatic disease. I think, too, as patients are living longer on systemic therapy, you're going to start seeing more algometastatic disease affecting the spine. Um, It's certainly associated with significant morbidity and loss of quality. The treatment is fundamentally palliative, but, again, advances in systemic therapy may warrant more aggressive management of algometastatic disease. And surgical treatment is really focused on the neurologic preservation, spinal stability, and facilitating delivery of effective radiotherapy. Um, and, and it's really the goal of separation surgery. Uh, but I, I think this is really ripe, and this patient population in particular is, is um, really in need of minimally invasive techniques. So thank you.
0: <laughs> Dr. Hartford.
2: Thank you. That was a wonderful talk uh, on so many different levels. Um, I, I love walking away from a talk and feeling like I've learned um, many things. I I um, the separation surgery is really important from a radiation oncologist's point of view, and you know, being limited in terms of the, the dose that can touch the uh, cord is you know, a problem. And this, this LIT um, approach is a wonderful technique. I guess a couple of, what, as I was listening to the issue of separation surgery, it struck me as to excuse the analogy to what we're doing right now in prostate cancer between the rectum and the prostate. So for the last year or two, we've been putting in a, of this little hydrogel, which literally pushes the rectum away from the prostate by about a centimeter and allows us to deliver higher doses to the prostate while lower doses uh, hit the normal tissue. So uh, the obvious analogy... Um, so I guess a couple of questions. One would be, would there be any role for a gel, or maybe you guys have already played with it, in areas where maybe lip uh, at the moment is not uh, thought feasible? Secondly, with the CSF being a heat sink, that's great. but you've got a lot of contact between tumor and cord. I don't, does it still allow you to do that? Would there be any advantage in trying to introduce something which allows you a little bit of space?
1: Yeah, so I think actually that's a really interesting um, idea, and certainly anything that would... Introduce space would just be constrained by then compressing the spinal cord. But if you could do either a gel or even infuse saline into the fecal sac, um, potentially it could give you that space. From cranial applications, oftentimes the the C S F space is very low too. It's a, a basal cistern or a sulcus. Um, so even in those cases, just anecdotally, again, you don't have a really impressive degree of you know spinal fluid volume between between critical structures. So. Cranial nerves, when you're doing a hippocampal ablation, the cranial nerves just on the other side of the pia don't seem to be at risk um, for damage, and some of it's thought to be from peel reflection, and then also a big part of it is just what little CSF you do have, particularly if there's some flow within that 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 you are having that as a heat sink. I do think it would be uh, foolish to just ablate willy-nilly thinking we have a, you know, by the principles of a CSF sink or a... Uh, you know, the veins, because, you know, there has been a patient that, that did have T2 changes within the cord itself on MRI. So fortunately, that was an irreversible deficit for them. Um, but obviously, the cord was seeing higher than, I guess, the other frightening thing about that is what the, the predicted temperature was based on the MRI thermography. So, the,
2: so in cervix or lumbar regions, do you think something like that might be of some doctor?
1: Yeah, and then the other thing that would just be if you had better visualization of the nerves that you knew that you could place the fibers without transgressing a nerve would be the other, the other way of really improving applications beyond the thoracic spine. Thank you. Hmm? Yeah, Artie. Uh,
2: Linda, in one of your initial slides, you had listed the types of cancers that metastasize to the spine. And I'm sorry if I missed this. Are they distinctly different than what metastasizes to the brain?
1: Um, so I, I, I don't think so, and I think part of why you know the the cancers that are most commonly metastasizing to the spine is that it's it's not only the biology of the cancer but also the prevalence within the population. But um, you know the the frequent culprits being breast, prostate, and lung. You know, I guess with the exception of prostate, um, but
2: yeah, so prostate hardly ever makes
1: it. Yeah, it? so. I, you know, and I, I don't know in terms of how much of, of what's metastasizing to the spine is also, you're seeing, just with other bony metastases at, at other parts of the skeleton. So I, I don't I don't know if there's, you know, a tropism for a vertebral body versus a femur. Um, you know where I'm going with this. Yes.
2: Right? So it's the same. If it is really the seed and soil thing that we, you and our group, are working on, then... Perhaps the data regarding spine metastases could actually strengthen and help us understand why certain tumors are going into the brain and not to the spine or vice versa. That's what I'm trying to understand.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't know. one
2: okay. of oh, um, <laughs> problems that we've experienced in the last couple of years uh, is uh, identifying these patients early enough to intervene effectively. Um, and Leslie Jarvis and I have been through a lot of hoops to try to create some automated order sets in EDH that would, you know, alert all the appropriate people that a patient with a spinal cord, you know, spinal cord compression is in the ER. So, it, I mean, it's, it's one thing to have all the technology and everything, but like, how do we, how, you, you share Spine Call with Ortho? like, how, how do we, how do we, how
1: do we yeah. So um, I think, I, for instance, at MD Anderson, there was a huge education component where there were medical oncologists saying, "I have this patient. Do you think they'd be a candidate for lit?" Oftentimes, when you were consulted with the spine met, the question was because they all wanted you know their patients to stay on therapy, and and so, you know, those, the oncologists were were eager to see this this implemented. So they were calling Tatsui saying. Will you consider this, and even when another person was on call, they were saying, "Do you mind asking Tatsui if he'll do lit on this so I, I think a big component is is education, i think um also just you know again sort of siloing who's who's managing these these patients um not to be to slight ortho, but um like I, I they they don't have the same familiarity with radio surgery as someone from neurosurgery does so i I don't know if, you know how much of that's um, you know, going into a, a thought process before. So, I, I mean, I think in catching these cases before they're symptomatic is, I mean, if, if everyone could, a lesion was found and they just got SRS at that time, that would be, you know, save them from a lot more than, than even this. But um, I know within neurosurgery we're working on ways of trying to silo those patients kind of under under neurosurgery.